listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. So today we are back in the letter of James. And if you had to squeeze the entire five chapters of James down into two words, I hope that two word summary is beginning to soak down into your heart. And here is that summary, faith works. That's what the whole letter of James is saying in two words, faith works. And James is showing us in every part of his letter in every passage of his letter, the various ways that faith works. Uh, He shows us that faith works in suffering. That's in chapter one, that faith works uh, in temptation. In chapter two, he shows us that faith works against favoritism. And we saw in our passage last week that faith even works in our fights, in the middle of conflict, that faith works. And now we're in this passage in James chapter four, and James is showing us yet another way that faith works. Faith works against worldliness. Faith works against worldliness. Now, this theme of worldliness is laced throughout this letter of James. Uh, James introduces the theme back in chapter one, the very last verse of chapter one in verse 27. It's a very popular verse. We love this verse. And James says, religion. That's another way of James saying uh, faith, true faith, religion, faith that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. He's saying, if you want to know what sort of faith God loves, What sort of religion that God loves? It looks like this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We love that verse. That that has sort of formed in our church family in such a way where we have a whole lot of our people valuing the vulnerable uh, through things like orphan care, adoption, and and fostering. We value the vulnerable. And this verse is one of those verses that has propelled us and moved us in that direction. Uh, But it's interesting, uh, verse 27, it's a beloved verse, but I think most people don't know there's one extra phrase in the verse. Uh, This last phrase says this, yes, God says, here's what pure and undefiled religion looks like. It's to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and There's an and at the end of that verse, and to keep oneself unstained from the world, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, what is the point James is making here? He's making this point. Faith works against worldliness. That's what uh, chapter one, verse 27 is getting at. And he's saying that the faith that doesn't work against worldliness is something less than biblical faith. You know, it's interesting, the more I read and then reread this letter, uh, the more it seems like this letter uh, functions um, like smelling salts. Uh, Do you know what I'm talking about with smelling salts? Smelling salts are meant to to be so jarring to your olfactory senses, your sense of smell, that it jolts you back to reality. And in a lot of ways, that's what the letter of James is meant to be. He's waving the smelling salts under our noses to wake us up, to jolt us to what's really going to matter when it matters most, when we're standing before Jesus and everything is on the line. James is saying over and over again, I don't want you to be surprised on that day. I don't want you to be shocked on that day. On that day when when forever hangs in the balance, when you're standing before King Jesus. On that day, I don't want you to be surprised. I don't want you to think I have a genuine faith only to find it's a counterfeit. James is saying, I I don't want that for you. So over and 
over and over again, James is saying the sort of faith that's going to matter when everything matters most, when you're standing before King Jesus, is not just mental agreement with Jesus. It's not just agreeing that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again. It's, it's more than that. Genuine faith, the sort of saving faith that matters one day when we're before Jesus, that faith is living, it's vibrant, it's active. It's, it's doing things. And James is saying this is one of the things it does. He's saying you can use this as a test. Is your faith genuine or a counterfeit? Here's one of the things that faith does. It, it works against worldliness. Faith works in us by keeping us unstained by the world, untethered to the world, unlike the world. And if this faith that we're depending on isn't doing that, if it's not working against worldliness, then James is saying, uh, please test that faith. If it's not doing that, it's, it's counterfeit. It's not the real article. It's not, it's not genuine. It's going to be worthless when it matters most. Now, James picks up on this theme in our passage today this theme of worldliness. And I want to work this passage out in three sort of sections or parts. Uh, Really, it's three questions. What is worldliness? Why is it a problem? And how do we fight against it? What is worldliness? Why is it a problem? And how do we fight against it? So we'll take part one. Question one, what is worldliness? Uh, Verse four is a jolting start to this passage. In verse four, James says, you adulterous people. I mean, that, that is a jolt. That, that is James taking the smelling salts and waving them in front of our noses. He, he's jolting us here. And there's an exclamation part at the end of those three words. Uh, this is said with urgency and intensity. Uh, but this metaphor, the, these first three words of verse four are also insightful. Uh, they tell us something about who God is who we are, and then what worldliness is. Uh, So let's think about what it tells us about God. These first three words, you adulterous people. Uh, Throughout the Bible, God is presented as a groom to his people. Uh, This is very rich Old Testament imagery. You see it in places like Isaiah chapter 54, where uh, the prophet Isaiah says, for your maker is your husband. Uh, You see it in Jeremiah 3, Hosea, Ezekiel 16. Uh, But this is also very rich New Testament imagery. In in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul shows us that that marriage is really just a signpost pointing beyond itself all the way to God's relationship with his bride, the church. Uh, Every time you watch an earthly wedding take place, the next time you're at a wedding, you you should think about this. What what you're seeing in that moment is a reenactment of the biblical love story. Uh, Part of what these first three words in in, uh, verse four show us is that for all of those in Christ, God is our groom. God is our husband. This is what it tells us about God. Now, what does it tell us about us? Well, this imagery shows us that if God is our husband, we are his bride. That that's what we are. This is who God is, and this is who we are. We're the bride. God has chosen us and set his affection on us and then pursued us, breaking down every barrier that was between us and him. God has chased us down. He's won us over, and then God has married us. That's the astonishing reality of the good news of Jesus. You could think about the day that you um, sort of said your yes to Jesus. You could think about that as your forever wedding day. 
Uh, one of the most important days of your life, your wedding day, it's the, the moment you said yes to God. It was the, the, the moment God came to you and said, I do to, to you. He said, I am from this point forward going to be 100% for you forever. That, that was your wedding day. And then with that I do ringing in your ears, you said back to God, I do. God, my life is yours. And we all know that when we say I do, that I do also carries an I don't, right? And saying yes to God, but we are also saying no to every other competing love. That's what it means to enter into a marriage covenant, us the bride and God the groom, in saying I do to you, God. We are saying I don't to every other competing love in our life. Now, with that understanding about who God is and who we are, uh, through, through kind of the lens of this metaphor, we can now understand what worldliness is. Uh, so what is worldliness? Uh, worldliness is the word used to describe the bride. That, that's us, the bride, leaving our husband, that's God, for other lovers. That's worldliness. It's the bride walking out of her home with God because she's enthralled with the men at the brothel. That, that's worldliness. And uh, let me be clear that when most people think about worldliness, they instantly think of actions. Uh, can I do this or can I not do that? Uh, can I watch that movie? Can I listen to this music? Can I wear this or not wear that? Can I drink this or not drink that? Uh, we instantly think of actions. Uh, but all of those actions are really just the fruit of worldliness. They're not, it's not worldliness at the root. Worldliness is not primarily an issue of actions it's primarily an issue of affections. Worldliness is that word used to describe a bride. Again, that's us. Who's become bored with God, just sort of disinterested in God, our groom. 
and at the same time become enthralled by lesser loves. That's worldliness. Uh, Do you remember the parable of the soils? In that parable, Jesus is telling a story about a man who is sowing gospel seed. He's just spreading the seed of the gospel and it's landing in various soils. And those soils are representing um, hearts of people. And do you remember the third soil? It's this group of people who um, the, the seed is scattered and this third group of people, this third soil, they, they receive the seed and it starts to grow. It's doing well, but then all of a sudden these thorns spring up all around this soil and, and, and in this heart. And Jesus goes on to explain what's happening in this picture. In Mark chapter four, uh, Jesus says this, and others are the ones sown among thorns. It's that third soil. They are the ones who hear the word. They hear the word, it lands in their heart, but then listen to Jesus name these thorns. He says, but then the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. That is a picture of worldliness at work in a human life. We just become bored with God. And when we become bored with with God, our hearts have to look somewhere. And Jesus is saying, uh, we often look to the cares of this world, uh, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. Uh, Those things become uh, the sort of lesser loves in our life that we give our hearts to. And here's really the burden of this text this morning is James is holding this text before us. He's he's holding the mirror before us and he wants us to look in the mirror and ask, is this happening to me? I mean, just think about your own heart. When you think about a rich, vibrant love of Jesus, is that a present reality or is that some sort of distant memory where you have to look back years ago to find a heart in you with that sort of rich, vibrant love of Jesus? Is your heart enthralled by God, in love with God? Or is it just sort of, just sort of bored with God? And listen, when it comes to worldliness, we are all at risk. There is not a human being alive, not, not a follower of Jesus alive who is immune to worldliness. Do you remember Demas? Uh, Paul talks about him in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and uh, Paul says that his old friend Demas had deserted him, just left him. And do you remember why? Uh, Paul says he, he deserted me because he was in love with this present world. And it wasn't always that way for Demas. He was once a a humble servant of the risen Jesus. He he had the dirt of ministry under his fingernails. He was a faithful bride to Jesus. But then all of a sudden, somewhere along the way, this slow drift began. And that slow drift became desertion. Demas was seduced by, by this world, by the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this world, the desire of other things. He, he was seduced away from Jesus to these lesser loves. And is this happening to you? Is there a rich, vibrant, active, alive love of Jesus in you? Or has worldliness began to seduce you like Demas? just drifting further and further away from God. 
Now, why is this a problem? Why is worldliness a problem? Well, James goes on to tell us in verses four and five. James says, you adulterous people, exclamation point. It's urgent, it's aggressive. It is the smelling salts being um, raised before our noses. Uh, You adulterous people. Then he goes on to say, do you not know that friendship, now that is a, a bigger word than clicking friend on Facebook. It's a bigger word than that. It has to do with sharing your life fully with someone. You could almost substitute the word love. Do you not know that being in love with this world, being a friend of this world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I love how the Living Bible translates verse five. It says it this way. The Holy Spirit who God has placed within us watches over us with tender jealousy, with tender jealousy. Now, this shows us why worldliness is a problem. Worldliness is a problem because God is a faithful husband. He's a faithful groom. And what would any faithful husband do if his wife walked out of the house and moved into a brothel? What would any faithful husband do? Well, with a broken heart, a faithful husband would would weep over her with tender jealousy. This is my wife. This is the one that I've given myself to. This is the one that I love and cherish and, and, and enjoy. And James is saying, that's what worldliness does to the heart of God. It produces that sort of grief in the heart of God. Think about the last time you willfully sinned against God. You just turned from God and you went after lesser love. Just think about that moment for for a minute. I wonder in that moment what your picture of God was like. I wonder in that moment, did you picture God weeping weeping over that sin, just grieving over that sin because this is what our sin does to the heart of God. It produces tears in him, grief in him, like a husband yearning over the wife that he loves so much, but but who has left him giving herself to, to lesser loves. That is a picture of the tender jealousy of God, the, the weeping heart of God over his adulterous bride. This is why worldliness is a problem, because God is a faithful husband who, who has this tender jealousy in him that weeps over our worldliness. And then here's the last question. How do we fight against worldliness? If worldliness is this big of a problem, how do we fight against it? And that, that's a huge question. Because again, when it comes to worldliness, we're all at risk. It's not a question of if worldliness is sort of in us. It's where is it and how bad is it, right? We're all a part of the unfaithful bride. James just sort of categorically loops the whole church in. We're all a part of of that unfaithfulness. That our hearts are so prone to leave the one that we have promised to be with forever. So, So what do we need? Well, James shows us two things we need in the fight against worldliness. Two things that we need. 
And you see the, ver- the first in verse six. We need grace. You need grace. I need grace. We need grace to fight against worldliness. Uh, look at verse six. James says, but he, talking about God, but he gives more grace. What, what a beautiful five words, but he gives more grace. That, that's amazing. Now think about the context because the context makes it even more amazing. James has just said, you adulterous people, you're, you're the people who have left your home with God. You've been flirting with other boyfriends. You've been, you've been taking the very things, the resources that God has given you, and you're using those resources that have come from God to purchase time with other loves, purchase pleasure from other lovers. He's saying you have fallen in love with this world. And in doing so, you have broken the heart of God. God's heart is weeping over that. He's saying here in this, in this passage, uh, that the weeping, yearning heart of God just, that's just full of this tender jealousy is, is broken for you. It's longing for you. He, he wants you back in the house with him. And there, caught red-handed in their adultery. Right here in James 4, caught red-handed in our adultery. James says this, he reminds us of this in verse 6. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. We naturally think there are Uh, you know, sort of reasonable limits upon the grace of God. And we naturally think that because we so naturally treat others that way. Uh, We're gracious up until a point. But James is saying here that that is not true of our God, but he gives more grace. God has an inexhaustible well of grace available and ready for you. This is what verse six is reminding us of. It's an inexhaustible well of grace. Verse six reminds us that there's always more grace in the heart of God than there is sin in you. That's what James is saying. Now, just consider your life for a second. Think about all that you need right now in your life. Verse six is reminding us that for, for every one of our needs, there is inexhaustible grace awaiting every one of those needs. There's grace for, for every single need. If, if you're an adulterer today, there's grace for that. For the sinner, there is grace for that. For the prodigal, there is grace for that. For every wound that you have, there's grace for that. For every hurt that you've endured, there's grace for that. For every moment of abuse that you have had to walk through, there is grace for that. I love what one pastor said. He said, for daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, there is sudden grace. For overwhelming need, there is overwhelming grace. Whatever the need is, James is saying, he gives more grace. God is full of inexhaustible grace for his bride. Now you might ask, well, James, how can you be so confident in that? How do you know that, James? Well, I think James would probably respond back by saying this. Um, Well, I saw my big brother Jesus die for sinners. That's how I know. And if God is willing to give uh, the grace of his son, his son's life, death, and resurrection to marry us, to secure our marriage, if he's willing to do that, if he's willing to do that huge thing for us, then, then what other grace, small in comparison, would God withhold from us? 
This is Paul's exact logic in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, when Paul says, he, he, talking about God, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Jesus, with him, with his life, death, and resurrection, with him graciously give us all things? If God willingly gave the grace to secure our marriage, then he'll give every grace needed to sustain our marriage. If he's given every grace needed to secure our marriage, then we can be confident that that all the grace we need, he will give for our marriage to be sustained. But he gives more grace. Everything you need to fight against worldliness that inexhaustible well of grace is ready to give you. We need the grace of God. Now, James goes on to tell us where to find the grace of God. Where do we find this grace that we so desperately need? Well, the second part of verse six tells us, James says, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What do we need if we're going to fight against worldliness? We need humble obedience. This is what James is saying in this part of the text. We need humble obedience. Now think about the picture James is painting for us. James is saying there is a well of inexhaustible grace that you need and I need day by day by day. And then James is saying, There is a path that leads down to that inexhaustible well of grace. And here's the name of the path that leads to that well. The path is called humble obedience. Humble obedience. It's it's humble because like water, the grace of God flows downhill away from the proud and to the humble. But it's not just humble, it's humble obedience, following that that call to humility in verse six, it's interesting what happens in verses seven through 10. Following that call to humility, there are 10 commands that just sort of rush upon us in verses seven through 10. 10 commands. And, And these commands are showing us that what's needed to get down to that well of grace is humble obedience. These commands are showing us what marks that path of humble obedience. It's things like this. Look at verse seven. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. But what does the path of humble obedience look like? It looks like this, a willingness to submit to God. A willingness to submit. Now, that word submit is a tough translation of the Greek word that's behind it. And it's a tough translation because in in our English language, that word submit, um, it has a lot of passive sort of connotations and overtones to it. Uh, But this word in the Greek is not passive, it's active. It's a very active word. Think Think of enlisting yourself in service to God. That's, that's the Greek word. It's, it's, it's active. It's enlisting yourself. It, it's, it's, an, it's an expression of active allegiance to God. It is, it's us proactively coming to God and saying, God, my life is yours. Everything I am, it's yours. God, you tell me what you want, where you want it, and when you want it. And God, my answer is yes. 
It's this idea of us holding our life up to God and saying, it is all yours. My life is a blank check in your hand, oh God. You can write into it whatever you want. That's the word submission. That's what it looks like to submit to God. And when is the last time you have done that? When is the last time you have held up your life to God and said, God, my life is yours. It's not mine. My life is yours. I make no demands of my life. I am yours. I I am following your commands for my life. In a lot of ways, submitting to God, this expression of active allegiance, is really a test for who is at the center of your life. Who gets to make the calls in your life? Do you get the final vote in your life? Do you get to make the final call in your life? Or does Jesus get to make the final call in your life? You know, it's, it's interesting to think about the way we think about life. And here's what I know about every human being. This is how we all think about our life. We all have a designer life. We look down the road, maybe five years down the road, 10 years down the road, 15, 20 years down the road. And we just know deep down, this is what our life should look like. It should look like fill in the blank of your designer life. Maybe it's, I should be in that position in five years from now, in 10 years from now. I should be in that place. I should be doing this in ministry. My marriage should look like this. My kids should look like this. Money in my life should look like this. Health in my life should look like this. You just fill in the blank of your designer life. We all have it, five, 10, 15 years down the road. This, this designer life that just deep down, it's like, that's what our life should look like. And submission, submitting to God means that we hold our designer lives loosely, that that we hold them loosely so, so that we can gladly and joyfully receive from Jesus the actual life that he wants to give us. That's submitting to God. It's holding our designer lives loosely so that we can receive from God the actual life he wants to give us. If if you want to see a negative picture of this, a refusal to submit to God, uh, think of our man Jonah. He had a designer life and his designer life had nothing to do with Nineveh, but God's actual life for him had everything to do with Nineveh. And, and Jonah didn't like him, didn't like that. So he went to war with God. I mean, he, he rebelled against God. And then in Jonah chapter four, we find Jonah out under a withered vine muttering these words to God. God, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. That's what a refusal to submit, to to receive from God the life he wants for us, that's what it leads to. Bitterness, anger, just war with God. If you want a positive example, what what does it look like to submit in a a human life? If you want a positive example, uh, listen to my friend, Nicole. Nicole was recently diagnosed with ALS, And one thing I know about everyone's designer life is none of them include ALS. None of them do. Uh, Day after day, it has just been stripping her of one physical ability after another. And listen to what she wrote last week on Facebook. Listen to what she said. She said, God, you are sovereign, yet at the same time, you are so near. 
I recently had a staring contest with a sunset. It was amazing just to watch that superstar take its perfect path to kiss the horizon. And God, you did that for us, for me. My voice is now completely unintelligible. My grief swelled again with the loss. ALS is not a painful disease, but it hurts. I use a type-to-speak app for every word that is important enough to say, and I choose my words carefully these days. I should have before. I took for granted that I could speak and I could sing and I could holler to the next room and I could pray aloud and I could fill quite gaps of conversation and interact with family and friends. This is how ALS hurts. But you, oh God, you don't waste a thing. Even as I stare down this horrible disease, you are still creating wonder in the journey. You've brought opportunities for me to do the very things now that I lament not doing while I was, it was, while I was capable. I can't speak, so I listen better. I've learned that being quiet is okay. I sing with my heart in a deeper worship than when I had a voice. So even though ALS has brought me to the evening of my life here on earth, Lord, you are the sun, the S-O-N, the sunshine I am fixed on. Your mighty power does not exclude your gentle love for your children. You, O oh God, sustain us for your purpose in the days that you have measured for us. That's submission. That is holding our designer lives loosely enough that we can receive from God the actual life he wants to give us. When is the last time you have just held your life up to God and said, God, I'm not making demands of it. I am submitting my life to you. You can make the calls in my life. Here's how you know you're living in active surrender, sub submitting to God. Here's how you know. You can so often feel the war within you. God, this is what I want, but God, you want that. I, I want this, but, but you want that. And here's how you know that you are submitting to God. You find that you are constantly siding with Jesus against yourself. God, I want this and you want that. And God, I'm not gonna side with me. I'm gonna side with you. That's submission. That's what it looks like to submit our lives to God. That's active allegiance. When is the last time you've just held up your hands and said, God, here I am. I submit to you. This is the path of humble obedience. But verse seven goes on. James has something else to say about that path. He says, here's also a part of the path of humble obedience. Resist the devil. And then here's the promise. And he will flee from you. That's the path of humble obedience. That path that leads down to the inexhaustible well of God's grace. That path requires resistance. Uh, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, calls our enemy Satan a roaring lion. And he says this about the, the lion that is Satan. He says that that lion is seeking someone to devour. Now, imagine this for a moment. Imagine that you knew that there was a lion outside your house. 
And that line was hungry. Uh, That line had killed countless people. And today he was going to try to kill you. Now, now imagine that for a moment. Do you think that would change the way that you live? If you knew that? Of course it would. And the scriptures just could not be more clear. There is a lion outside. He, He has already devoured many. And today he is scheming to kill you. This is why Paul, when he writes to the church in Corinth, pleads with them, don't be ignorant of the schemes of our enemy. Don't be ignorant to these things. If I were to ask you, do you think God has a plan for your life? I think most would rightly say, well, of course he has a plan for our life. But I don't think that very many of us consider that just like God has a plan for our life, Satan has a plan for our life. And Satan's plan for our life does not lead to human flourishing, but to human heartbreak, to misery, to to ruin. And and we should ask ourselves periodically, if if I were Satan, how would I try to derail my life? How would I try to to introduce heartbreak into my life? What what would I try to do if, if I were Satan? And do you know what's so surprising about the schemes of Satan? Here's what's so surprising about them. To, to derail our lives, he doesn't need us to hate God. He doesn't need us to do that. To derail our lives, he doesn't need us to hate God. He just needs you to love the things of this world a little more than the God you once loved so much. That's all he needs to do to, to bring havoc into your life to derail your life, to to bring demise to your life. It's just for a few of those thorns to begin to grow in your heart, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things. So think about your life for a moment. Where do you need to actively resist the schemes of Satan? Where do you need to actively resist the drift toward worldliness? Where do you need to actively actively resist temptation and sin right now in your life? The path of humble obedience requires resistance. And then James shows us one other thing in verse eight. He says, here's what's also on the path of, of humble obedience. This path that leads down into the well of God's inexhaustible grace He says this in verse eight, draw near to God, draw near to God. And here's the promise. And he will draw near to you. That is the path of humble obedience. If you want more and more and more of God's inexhaustible grace, this is where it's found in a constant ongoing moment by moment drawing near to God. Now, how do we go about doing that? What does it look like to draw near to God? Well, one answer could be to think about all the sort of spiritual habits that are so necessary in our life with God. So it's Bible reading and, and it's prayer and it's living in community. That would be one way to answer it. But, but look how James answers it. James goes on to say this. Here's how you draw near to God. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, all of that, all these sort of imperatives that James gives here, that is all biblical language describing repentance. 
James is saying, this is how you draw near to God. It's ongoing repentance. Repentance is leaving the brothel of this world and coming back home to God. He's saying, this is how we draw near to God, uh, repentance. And he's saying that this drawing near to God is not a one-time event. No, no, it's not a one-time event. It's this ongoing day-by-day work of repentance. I love how Martin Luther said it. He said, when our Lord and master, Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Our entire lives, day by day, moment by moment, drawing near to God in repentance. And and this verse shows us something about repentance. Uh, Repentance does produce sorrow in us. He says it here, be wretched and mourn and weep. But it's important to also note this. It's a sorrow that leads us back home to God, right? Back home to God where we can enjoy the refreshing water of God's grace forever. So, So yes, it produces sorrow in our heart, but after the sorrow, it produces deep and abounding joy in us. Think about those thorns of worldliness the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. Worldliness is what happens when those thorns grow around our neck, making it harder to breathe with each passing day as it it chokes out that life-giving love of God. That's worldliness. On the other hand, repentance, drawing near to God, is this painful act of of cutting back those thorns. It feels like we're cutting ourselves because they're so in us. Uh, But repentance is this act of of cutting back those thorns. It's a painful act. Uh, But after the pain, we begin to breathe again. Uh, We begin to breathe the life-giving, joy-producing love of God. So I want to give you a moment to to pray and to consider this passage. I want to end by doing that today. So there where you are, will you bow your head? And I want to give you just a a moment or two, some space to consider what James is saying here in this text. And regardless of where you are today, where you find yourself today today, what need you have in your life today, James reminds us that God gives more grace. Grace for every need in your life. James here is encouraging us to to think about where the thorns of worldliness have grown in our life the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, just just the desire for other things. Where where have we turned from God as if he is boring and, and moved toward other loves? Where in our life do we need to redeclare an active allegiance to God, submitting to God? Where in our life do we need to resist? To resist the schemes of our enemy? And where do we need to repent today? 
Is there coldness in our heart toward God? Do we find that what we dream about and what our heart is really enthralled with is something other than God? If that's true in tender jealousy, God is weeping over that right now just imploring us and pleading with us to repent, to to move out of our home with the world and back into our home with him. And for some, this is the day where you need to make that decisive move toward Jesus. For the first time, it's you coming in submission to God and saying, God, I am trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to make me right with you. I am making that decisive move towards you. God, I am coming with the empty hands of faith, trusting Jesus today for all who will come. God is willing to give grace today, more grace and more grace and more grace. He he stands with arms wide open, ready to welcome you and his family. So God, would you speak to us now? God, would you press this passage down into our souls and would you, our groom, our faithful husband, God, would you talk to us, your bride today? Would you show us what we need to see in us? Would you speak tenderly to us, God? Would you draw us back to you today, oh God? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.